Stories of Communism 10, Orwell Betrayed. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. If you attended high school in the U.S., you're almost certainly familiar with George Orwell's two classic novels about the dangers of totalitarianism, Animal Farm and 1984. Because they're so abstract, people of all political stripes like to claim that these depict what would happen if their opponents gained control. But did you know that they were partially inspired by Orwell's short real-life experiences living under communist rule in revolutionary Spain of the 1930s? Despite Orwell's fame, fans of socialism in our media and education industries have largely buried Orwell's classic memoir of this period, Homage to Catalonia. By the way, George Orwell was a pen name, but for the sake of consistency, we'll refer to him by that name throughout this episode. The homage describes Orwell's experiences fighting in the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s. This war involved a number of different groups, but was primarily a conflict between the fragile Soviet-sponsored socialist government of Spain against the fascist military rebellion led by Francisco Franco. Realizing they were outgunned, the government, aided by Stalin's Communist International, called for foreign volunteers to help defend it, and thousands poured into Spain from around the world. It's pretty amazing if you think about it. Young, idealistic socialists and communists from Western countries believe so strongly that they put their jobs, homes, and families on hold to risk their lives fighting for this cause. Among these was a young George Orwell. When he first arrived, the people of the Spanish Republic really did seem to have taken their socialist ideals of equality seriously. Every shop and coffee had an inscription saying that he had been collectivized. Even the boot blacks had been collectivized and their box painted red and black. Waiters and shop walkers looked you in the face and treated you as an equal. They were no private motor cars. They had all been commandeered and all the trams and taxis and much of the other transport were painted red and black. In outward appearance, it was a town in which the wealthy classes had practically ceased to exist. Except for a small number of women and foreigners, there were no well-dressed people at all. Practically everyone wore rough working class clothes or blue overalls or some variant of the militia uniform. All this was queer and moving. There was much in it that I didn't understand. In some ways, I did not even like it, but I recognized it immediately as a state of affairs worth fighting for. A large part of the memoir is taken up by a vivid, harrowing description of what life was like on the front lines of the conflict, from the point of view of an undersupplied, underfed foot soldier and a woefully inexperienced and untrained army. It's a classic depiction of life in wartime, which I would highly recommend if you're interested in such topics. Today we're going to gloss over that aspect of the book, though, since the point of this podcast is the politics. After several months on the front lines, Orwell was wounded and given leave to spend some time recuperating in Barcelona, where political issues once more came into focus. When he arrived, he noticed that there had been some unfortunate changes in the ideal classless society while he was gone. Fat, prosperous men, elegant women, and slick cars were everywhere. It appeared there were still no private cars. Nevertheless, anyone who was anyone seemed to command a car. The officers of the new popular army, 
He typed, I had scarcely existed when I left Barcelona, swarm in surprising numbers. The majority were young men who had gone to the school of war in preference to joining the militia. All of them had automatic pistols strapped to their belts. We at the front could not get pistols for love or money. A deep change had come over the town. There were two facts that were the keynote of all else. One was that the people, the civil population, had lost much of their interest in the war. The other was that the normal division of society into rich and poor, upper class and lower class, was reasserting itself. Even worse, the various factions involved in the government coalition had become increasingly suspicious of each other. The Soviet-sponsored communists of the Popular Army wanted to ensure their control, so they began to issue continuous propaganda against the militias of the other factions in their coalition, including the POUM, the smaller socialist party to which Orwell belonged. Here we can see some of the origin of Orwell's concept of doublespeak from his novel 1984. Meanwhile, there was going on a systematic propaganda against the party militias and in favor of the Popular Army. Over the radio and in the communist press, there was a ceaseless and sometimes very malignant jiving against the militias, who were described as ill-trained, undisciplined, etc., etc. The popular army was always described as heroic. For much of this propaganda, you would have derived the impression that there was something disgraceful in having gone to the front voluntarily. The fact that the militia troops were also, on paper, popular army troops was skillfully used in the press propaganda. Any credit that happened to be going was automatically handed to the popular army, while all blame was reserved for the militias. It sometimes happened that the same troops were praised in one capacity and blamed in the other. It reached the level where some minor street fighting actually broke out in the city. Orwell was disgusted that his comrades were fighting each other rather than working towards their great cause, but had no choice but to join in on the side of his faction, helping to defend a building. Eventually, the popular army took control of the city and ended the factional fighting, and Orwell returned to the front. Once more, however, he was wounded, and after a difficult recovery in some horribly supplied and understaffed medical facilities, he returned to Barcelona. But now his POUM membership put him in real danger, as he learned when trying to visit his wife's hotel. Luckily, she'd been expecting him and intercepted him by the entrance. Listen, you mustn't come here. Get out quickly and hide yourself before they ring up the police. And behold, at the bottom of the stairs, one of the hotel staff who was a POUM member, unknown to the management, I fancy, slipped furtively out of the lift and told me in broken English to get out. Even now, I did not grasp what had happened. What the devil was all this about? I said as soon as we were on the payment. Haven't you heard? No. Heard what? I heard nothing. The POUM's been suppressed. They seized all the buildings. Practically everyone's in prison. And they say they are shooting people already. On 15 June, the police had suddenly arrested Andres Nin in his office, and the same evening had raided the Hotel Falcon and arrested all the people in it, mostly militiamen on leave. 
The place was converted immediately into a prison, and in a very little while it was filled to the brim with prisoners of all kinds. Next day, the POUM was declared an illegal organization, and all its offices, bookstores, sanatoria, red aid centers, and so forth were seized. Meanwhile, the police were arresting everyone they could lay hands on who was known to have any connections with the POUM. In some cases, the police had even gone to the length of dragging wounded militiamen out of the hospitals. Apparently, the suppression of the POUM had a retrospective effect. The POUM was now illegal, and therefore one was breaking the law by having previously belonged to it. As usual, none of the arrested people had been charged. Meanwhile, however, the Valencia Communist papers were flaming with the story of a huge fascist plot. The communists had decided to blame the POUM for the recent street fighting and label them as fascist agents. POUM members, or anyone whose loyalty to the Communist Party was not proven, could now be arrested on sight. The upbeat revolutionary spirit that Orwell had observed in the people a few months before seemed to have been frittered away, though some of the true believers who hadn't been immediately targeted still managed to hold on to their idealistic convictions. And it was queer how everyone expressed it in almost the same words. The atmosphere of this place is horrible, like being in a lunatic asylum. But perhaps I ought not to say everyone. Some of the English visitors who flitted briefly through Spain from hotel to hotel seemed not to have noticed that there was anything wrong with the general atmosphere. Orwell then had to spend some time essentially in hiding. He could blend in with the crowds during the day, but did not dare to sleep in his wife's hotel room or appear in places where he was known, or he'd be arrested. Even more cruelly, he found out that the government was attempting to keep the POUM suppression a secret from the front lines, so its soldiers would continue to risk their lives without knowing that, as soon as they returned home, they would be arrested or executed. In the whole business, the detail that most sticks in my throat, though perhaps it is not of great importance, is that all the news that was happening was kept from the troops in the front. As you will have seen, neither I nor anyone else in the front have heard anything about the suppression of the POUM. About a hundred miles from Barcelona, no one had heard what was happening. All word of it was kept out of the Barcelona papers. This kind of thing is a little difficult to forgive. I know it was the usual policy to keep bad news from the troops, and perhaps as a rule that is justified, but it is different matter to send men into battle and not even tell them that behind their backs their party is being suppressed, their leaders accused of treachery, and their friends and relatives thrown into prison. Orwell was also horrified that despite the mass arrest of POUM members, there was no real legal process for them to follow once arrested. They were generally thrown in crowded, dirty jails and left there to eventually die, or at best be arbitrarily released years later with lasting effects on their physical and mental health. He wrote about several idealistic friends of his who had given up everything at home to come fight for the cause, only to find themselves confined without trial or executed by their supposed comrades. One example is Orwell's young friend Bob Smilly. Smiller's death is not a thing I can easily forgive. 
Here was this brave and gifted boy who had thrown up his career at Glasnow University in order to come and fight against fascism, and who, as I saw for myself, had done his job at the front with faultless courage and willingness, and all they could find to do with him was to fling him into jail and let him die like a neglected animal. I know that in the middle of a huge and bloody war, it is no use making too much fuss over individual death. One airplane bomb in a crowded street causes more suffering than quite a lot of political persecution. But what angers one about a death like this is its utter pointlessness. To be killed in battle? Yes, that is what one expects. But to be flung into jail? Not even for any imaginary offense, but simply owing to dull blind spite and then left to die in solitude? That is a different matter. While still on the run, Orwell and his wife attempted to use their small amount of influence and contacts to help another of their friends, George Kopp, who was still imprisoned. Their efforts proved essentially futile, however, and they realized that their only reasonable course of action was to flee the country before being forced to join him. In the end, Orwell and his wife managed to escape from Spain and head back to England, where he resumed his literary career and eventually produced his well-known classics. And now we reach the portion of the podcast where my co-host Manuel steps out from behind the microphone and um, talks about uh, what he thinks about the topic we've been discussing today. So, so what do you think, Manuel? <laughs> Very interesting. I can't help but to think about the multitude of youngsters sometimes in Western Europe and the U.S. that are very willing to go and join causes that they seem that they sympathize with in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, these ideologies, whether it is, you know, communism or socialism or, you know, radical Islam, I mean, they all have the same uh, properties that they seem to say, okay, well, you just look to this one place and it'll have all the answers and it'll make life perfect and fair and just for everybody. And there's a lot of attraction to that idea, especially when you're young and looking ahead of you at a life of, you know, struggling to make a living and contribute to society. Wouldn't it be nice if in one fell swoop you could make everything perfect? Yeah, of course. I can't help but to think that uh, many of the European countries now are kind of reverting back to this thinking of uh, socialism and communism, that it's probably a better way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's kind of scary. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, the reasons, again, why we create this podcast is because people have to remind ourselves how the prosperity that we have, the success we have in the Western world, is due to the innovations of sort of individual rights and freedoms. Right? The idea that the government doesn't know anything, or doesn't know everything, rather, and can't do everything for you, and that it has to leave people the freedom to do things for themselves. And, of course, that's a very scary idea to a lot of people. And, um, you know, it seems like, you know, well, wouldn't it be better to have the government come in and solve all our problems for us? Even in the U.S., it seems like we're having uh, some people having a hard time dealing with freedom. Well, yeah, I mean, we are having this socialist moment in the media now, and you see, like, this this uh, woman... Uh, who uh, just won in that primary New York, Cortez. right, Cortez, who, as, you know, this dedicated socialist and newspapers all over the country are saying, hey, isn't it time to think about socialism? And I actually think a lot of it is sort of the fault of our educational system and media, again, for just not, not reminding people what's good about capitalism and, and what it's brought, brought us in the United States. 
Well, let's hope that uh, we come to our senses and that not enough people think that this is a great idea because we've seen this movie before and it never ends well. Right. I mean, we saw in, in the case of uh, Orwell's experience in Spain how this idealistic society very quickly devolved into old-fashioned class structures, right, except just it was now communist fat cats who were in charge. And, of course, on top of that, you know, due to the nature of the system, they had absolute power to destroy their enemies. And we've seen this also play out over and over in South America. I mean, we've seen it happen in, you know, Argentina when back in, like, the 50s. We've seen it recently in Venezuela. We've seen it in Cuba, as we discussed in the last episode. Everywhere, people keep turning, you know, in their democratic societies, looking and saying, well, wait a minute, we have too much freedom. Maybe the government needs to be more powerful so it can come in and solve all our problems. And every time they decide on that system, whether through a military coup or a vote, it ends up the same way. Wow. And you wonder what is so appealing about it. But I guess most of them start as something benign, you know, something that is going to be good for everyone. Yeah. And it never ends up being what was promised. Right. They, they want it to be good for everyone. And, and sometimes people enter into it with the best of intentions. But when you give government absolute power, the kind of people who seek to lead the government are then the people who love absolute power. Well, thank you for the uh, education. Anyway, Orwell's time in Spain had been relatively brief, but he'd directly experienced many of the worst failures of socialist and communist governments. Government doublespeak and propaganda, the fundamental inability to sufficiently supply and feed their people, the emergence of new classes based on government loyalty, purges and unjustified mass arrests, and total arbitrariness of the judicial and legal processes. Knowing about these experiences definitely provides some new insights when trying to interpret 1984 and Animal Farm. And this concludes your story of communism for today.